Philippians chapter 1 tonight, and you can put that up on the... We're basically going to... I'm going to split it in half between verse 6, which is a wonderful promise, and then verses 9 through 11, which are a prayer. Uh, But I wanted to read it all the way through in its context before we break it down. This is Paul's favorite church by virtue of the fact it was of all the letters it's the happiest letter that he wrote it was the only one he really didn't have to correct any weird doctrine or anything and and it's written with love he's very expressive of his love i've always have great admiration for a pastor that tells his people how much he loves them do you ever hear that enough i i don't ever hear it enough i i need to hear it all the time Um, but Paul did not know if he was ever going to see these people again and that makes it even more poignant I'm 70 years old and every time I see my family and I have to go back home a thousand miles from here up in the upper left hand corner I don't know if I'll ever see them again frankly I just don't so don't you choose your words carefully when you're praying for people, especially if you had to write it in a letter, just delete the, the, the whole idea of email out of your brain. Because when Paul wrote this letter, it might have taken months to get there. He could be dead by the time they read these words. So he chose his words carefully, and we're beneficiaries of it. I'm going to read these first uh, 11, well, there's 14 verses, I think, in no. 12 verses, starting at verse 3. If you have a Bible, it might be good. If you have a notebook, there's some fat words in here, and you might want to underline some things. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. Here's the promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I have to interrupt here and say, some of the greatest treasures in my, of my heart are in this church. So when I read this, names and faces flash in front of me. And this is my prayer. That your love might abound, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that, anytime you see a so that, circle it, because you're about to be told the reason why he said something, or you're about to be told the purpose for something. So, so that, for all you Bible students, ought to just jump out, jump out and hit you in the face. So that, he said, I'm praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that. Here's the reason why he prays that. 
so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wow, good stuff. Let's look at verse 6. Let's look at this promise. Like a lot of the promises in the Bible, this one is going to be really hard to believe sometimes. Even for yourself, I personally think this is the hardest promise in the Bible to believe for parents who are trying to believe it for their children. Because it so often looks like there ain't no stinking way God's going to be able to pull this one out. But I have to tell you, I have trouble believing this promise for myself. I know who I am. I know my doofosity knows no bounds. I am just a, I'm an expert doofus. You didn't know what doofosity was, do you? It's, it's the quality of being a doofus. I just invented that word. And my doofosity sometimes... It seems bigger than God. And I think, Lord, yeah, you can hold the subatomic particles of every atom in the universe together and name all the stars, but can you do anything with me and grow me up and make me of what you want me to be? And you know what? Only God could do that. The thing I love about the promise is that it leans all of its weight on God. Our part is simply to not fight him. I want to take this apart. Let's look at it. There's four main points in this verse, and I had them highlight. I love that. They can highlight certain words with a little yellow. Uh, I had them highlight the word began because that's the key point in here. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to its completion. When the church of Philippi started, if you know the story, if you don't know the story, it's in, found in Acts 16. Don't turn there now. But it's a fascinating story because the church at Philippi, which wound up changing an entire country, wouldn't have ever happened if Paul had had his will. God had to say no to Paul twice. In fact, God had to interrupt Paul's momentum twice and stop him from going so. And Paul wasn't, his plans weren't icky, ungodly plans. They were godly plans. He was, he was a missionary. He was sharing the gospel everywhere. And he tried to go into Turkey twice. And God stopped him. Then he had a dream. And God sent him almost exactly 180 degrees the opposite direction. And I got to talk about this. Have you ever had your momentum disrupted? If you're one of the people that lost your home, you, that's, isn't that just the perfect description? You've spent all this time, you have all this momentum getting yourself to a certain point, and all of a sudden, in one day, it's gone. That's happened to me twice, where I lost everything and had to start all over again. And one time it was because of my own foolishness, one time it was because of somebody else's foolishness. But the amazing thing is that if you belong to Jesus, nobody's driving, nobody's driving your bus but him. 
It might look like other people are driving your bus. It might look like they're not paying any attention to what God says, and God still can get his will done. And the thing that I love about the interruption, but God does some of his very best things in interruption. So after you get to a certain age and, and you have that disruption of your momentum or your, inter, your plans are interrupted, you start thinking, okay, God must be up to something. And you, and you want to listen and, and not miss any of the good stuff. And I can look back at those times when I lost everything and had to start over again. And the whole course of my life changed. And it needed to change for God's will to be done. Elizabeth Elliot, one of my favorite quotes from Elizabeth Elliot says, Sometimes for God's will to be done, my will has to be undone. And I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like that. <laughs> I usually have invested a lot of research and a lot of my heart in my plans. I think I have pretty darn good ideas, quite frankly. <laughs> but boy, just thank your lucky stars that I'm not running the universe. We would be in big trouble. So God, God interrupted Paul's plans, and Paul, it took... I love that God was patient. He didn't smite him dead for heading in the wrong direction. He, and he was willing to say no twice. Can I tell you something just between us? No is a good answer. If you're asking God for his will to be done, no is a good answer. No is a loving answer. No is a perfect answer. Let me tell you something about walking through doors. I, my, my prayer is, God, please close the wrong doors and open the right doors. But I've discovered that if you walk too fast through a door that's closing, you know what happens? You get hit in the nose. And so I'm learning to be a little bit more cautious. I'm still not very good at it. He who began, Paul could say unequivocally that God was the one that started the church at Philippi. He knew it wasn't him. He would have been in another country altogether if it had been up to him. There's something so valuable about obstacles to the plan. Because I think I'm a guy, and you know the guy thing, you're a guy, go out and do it. You know, I think, when I think I know what the plan is, I don't listen as hard. I just go do it. So God has to stop me. He has to disrupt my momentum if that's the case. If he has a better plan than mine and I am not paying attention, then sometimes he can stop me quite painfully. Paul could say without doubt, look, I know you guys are there. I know there's a church in Philippi that wound up affecting that whole part of the world. And he said, I know it only happened because of God. I was going the opposite direction. I wouldn't even know you guys. So that's worth knowing. So he who began, began is the key word. Who started it? Like Pastor Carlin said, if God started it, God always finishes what he starts. So he who began, second part, a good work. In you. By the way, I've noticed that all of the yous in here in Greek are all singular, except for where the NIV says all of you. Then it's plural. 
but otherwise it's singular, which tells me that the promise and the prayer apply to me as an individual and not just to the whole, you know, some carpet bomb prayer covering the whole church or the whole world. Specifically, these can be taken as promises to us. In my church in Maine that I pastored for 20 years, until two years ago, our motto verse was Ephesians 2.10. It's a great verse. It says, we are God's work of art. Poema is the Greek word. We get our word poem from it. We are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. That good works thing, same exact words as here in Philippians 1.6. And what that verse, Ephesians 2.10, tells me is that God's primary work is not what I'm going to be doing for him, which he's already prepared in advance, but it's what he's doing in me. And I'll tell you, it took a long time for me to figure this out because I am not the fastest learner. But what God is making me into is a lot more important to him than what I'm doing for him. Know what I mean? He seems to spend an enormous amount of time on things that we're, we're ready to move on to the next lesson. He spent almost 15 years of my life on one particular Verse. Perseverance must finish its work in James. Perseverance must finish its work for you to be mature, not lacking anything. 15 years. And I didn't even sign up for the course. <laughs> I didn't think I needed it. So the good work is what God's making us into. And then the fruit of that is he has things that we're going to be doing for him. That's why it's like he's making an instrument for a symphony that he's writing. He's making the instrument to play a certain part, and no one's ever seen the instrument before, and no one's heard the symphony. It's all, it's all here in this amazing, creative, fabulous mind of God. And that's you, and that's me. He's doing a good work in you. And it only began really to kick into gear when we were saved. When we passed from death to life, when he made us life in Christ, he started that work. Now, was he at work before then? Oh, yeah, none of us would be saved if he hadn't been already at work. But, but the work individually that God began, and then it's never all about me because we're all connected to each other. The work that he began individually and collectively, uh, he is going to be faithful to complete it. One little note I wrote to myself, it's not really a, it's a rabbit trail, but it's more like a rabbit turnoff, not really an entire arterial highway for the rabbits is that it's not all about here and now. Amen. God is not in a hurry. He's taken the long view. He's in it for the long haul, folks. We tend to be blinded by what we can see. If you're an analytical, hyper-analytical person like me and hyper-emotional, that's a really bad combination. 
because you're, you just measure reality sometimes in the completely the wrong way. Remember the old saying of, of looking at your life like watching a parade through the knothole in the fence? Remember that we talked about before? That's the way we are. But God doesn't do that. He sees the whole parade. He knows the whole plan. 2 Corinthians 4.17 is a wonderful verse, and it tells me that there's a direct connection between suffering. The NIV uses the word affliction, but the Greek word is thlepsis, which is the word for trash compactor type trials, where you are crushed beyond your ability. The 2 Corinthians 4.17 says there's a direct correlation between those crushing suffering trials and who we're going to be for all of eternity. This really helped me years ago with my daddy. My dad, who was the godliest man that I've ever known up close and personal, on his way home from delivering a piano for Stan Roy's, um, his heart stopped. And he slumped over the wheel, and the, the, the van ran across through, right through the intersection. Amazing, nobody hit him. And the paramedics didn't get there in time to restart his heart until he had brain damage. And all of us are wondering, why didn't he die? He would have gone straight to heaven, but he spent eight years in a nursing facility, and he, didn't, he couldn't sometimes carry on a complete conversation. Sometimes he didn't know if he, who you were. Heart, it was heartbreaking. I really struggled with this. And I thought, well, God, he's a good guy. He's one of the good guys. You know better than anybody. What could possibly be the purpose? And God said something to me that changed my whole outlook on suffering, especially at the end of a good life. Maybe it'll apply to you. He said, Bob, what if there were a few more things to polish off for who your dad's going to be for billions and billions and billions of years that could only happen on earth in a nursing home with me, me having his brain all to myself? What if? Would that be okay with you? When I started crying because I thought, well, I'm just looking at this completely the wrong way. I'm thinking my dad has brain damage and so God's done. And God says, no way. When I'm done, he's out of here. But there are some things that can only be developed through suffering. There, and you know what? The only thing we take with us to heaven is character. The only thing formed on earth that we take with us to heaven is character. So that's my little rabbit trail. It's not all about here and now. The work that God wants to do might look totally to you like he dropped the ball. It might look like he's not paying attention or somebody hijacked your bus. The Bible gives plenty of examples of it looking like that. The first one that pops into my mind is Jacob 
when Jacob said, all these things are against me. And you want to go, Jake, dude, just in the next chapter, you find out Joseph's not dead. Everything's going to be groovy. Just hang on, man. A few more verses. So he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That is one verb in Greek. Carry it on to completion. I'll give you the verb if I hope that you look these words up. I'm a word guy, so sometimes I trip over a word and I just, I fall in and I can't get out for a couple of weeks. I just find fabulous things. This is the word epiteleo. E-P-I-T-E-L-E-O. The root word is the word teleo, which means to finish something. Like the composer finishing a symphony or, a symphony or an artist finishing a painting. But the intensive prefix on the front of it, epi, means it's like finishing something on steroids. It means like God is really, really fully engaged in finishing what he started. It's not like, yeah, I was a chef trainee in college, when you got 10 things cooking all at the same time, and if you're a trainee, you burn half of the stuff because you forgot that, you know, this has got to be taken off the burning. Well, no, that's not God's problem. He is fully, fully engaged. Why do I need to know this? Because I, I think it's all about me sometimes. I remember having a conversation with him one time when I was especially feeling my dufosity. <laughs> and I, I just thought I had made a really bad decision that was going to totally screw up all of God's plans. And I was, I was just crestfallen over... There's a fine old British word, crestfallen. Here's what he said to me. In the middle of the night when I'm <laughs> tossing back and for thinking it's all over. Here's what he said to me. One of the coolest things he ever said to me. He said, Bob, you are not smart enough or dumb enough to mess up my plans. <laughs> Isn't that great? Really? See, all of God's plans, folks, are made with his perfect and experiential knowledge of the future. He's told me more than once, I am not making this up as I go along. I am not. <laughs> I have a plan. It goes all the way to the end. Which is what it means when it says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to its completion fully, completely, complete the plan that he had until the day of Christ Jesus, all the way to the end. Bank on it. Now, see, here's the most fabulous thing about this promise. I don't always believe it. I, I'll freely admit it's the hardest promise for me to believe because I keep getting in my own way, and I keep thinking, well, I, surely he can't do that for me. Here's the wonderful thing. Even if you don't believe it, even if you have trouble believing it, God believes it, and that's all that matters. Hang on to that, because I can promise you, if you're praying for somebody you love, and you know they 
You know they made a decision for the Lord, but they are a zillion miles off in space right now, running as fast as they can. Bank on this promise. If God started that work, he will complete it. And they won't be able to outrun him. They're not dumb enough, and they're not smart enough to mess up his plan. So that's the promise. You know what? I've got a few more minutes before I have to shift over to the prayer. All the way to the end. Remember, but just remember, the end isn't necessarily stop at this life. It's not, yeah, it's not all about here. It's not all about now. And I tell you, that changes a few things for me. That was the thing that saved me those times when I lost everything. And I remember one time what was controlling my whole life was injustice. And I just thought, God, you love justice. You are the epitome of justice. How, why are you letting this happen? And what he said to me, once again, in the middle of the night when I was worn out worrying about it, he said, here's what I want you to do. Yeah, I know it's not just. I know it's not fair. I want you to bear it like a godly man, like your Lord and Savior did. Bear the injustice. Don't just stop in your track and say, I'm not budging until I get justice. He said, no, that's not what this is about. I'm allowing this injustice for you to be a godly man bearing it. And what that's going to do in you. Isn't that wonderful? I didn't sign up for that course either. How grateful I am, though, that he signs me up for what he knows I need. He has had to drag me kicking and screaming down the path that leads to the blessing way too many times because I was just so short-sighted, so hyper-analytical and hyper-emotional. And, and uh, I, I invested in those plans. He said, well... Didn't really tell you to. <laughs> my pastor, Chuck Smith, my pastor and friend for 44 years, used to say, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. I have to tell you, folks, some of our breaking comes because we're not flexible. We get mixed up. We think God's plan is the same as our plan. And it might be, but it might not be. And his is better. So what my part of it is to do whatever he tells me to do, to not fight him, and then just trust that he's fully engaged, even if it doesn't look like it. Even if the best parts of the, the even if the next pieces of the dominoes that's going to knock the, another hundred dominoes down and all of a sudden it's going to look brilliant, even if they're not even on the table yet, he's still working. I do find these words so poignant. Well, they, they speak right to me, but I find them so poignant given who Paul said them to, people he loved. He knew God started the work. Paul spent a lot of his time in jail. He couldn't have helped these people even if he'd wanted to. And he was pretty sure, if you read the whole letter, he wasn't ever going to see them again. 
So he wanted them to know, if you hear one day that Caesar killed me, doesn't change anything. Because Paul didn't start the church in Philippi. God started it. And he always finishes what he starts. And so then when we come to the sharpshooter prayer, it just becomes even more poignant. I have this thing, maybe it's just because of my age, but um, I'm just clinging to my, I love my sisters. They're the, they're the best women I know. And I love my brother. And I've already lost my parents and my grandparents who raised me. But when I'm around my sisters and my brother, I just don't want to let go. And when I talk to them, we tend to cut out the fluff and the lobby talk because I don't know when I'm going to get to look them in the eyeballs again and tell them that I love them and tell them what wonderful people I, I think they are. And usually, what's the first thing that happens when you lose somebody unexpectedly? The very first thing is you are filled with grief at all the things you didn't say or some of the things you did say that you wish you hadn't. So this letter is powerful, I think. It is a sharpshooter prayer. Just be, I love Paul's prayers. I love all of them. Because he was smart enough and mature enough to not pray for symptoms of the problem like we do. You know, oh God, please make them happy or they won't love you. You know what? A lot of people got saved because their lives went down the toilet and they couldn't rescue themselves. And so after a while, you see that happen a few times, you just, just go, go for it, Lord. Whatever it takes, if they have to crash and burn, if that's what it's going to take to save them from hell, go for it. But when you're praying for somebody, I have to say, I told, already told you, some of the greatest treasures of my heart are in this church. And, of course, I'm, I'm getting more of them all the time because I'm getting to know you better. And uh, I even remember in some of your names. And I pray for you. And I pray for those that are my treasures. And these are the things I pray for them. I, re I remember the first time I studied this and taught this, I thought, yeah. Those, those are good things to pray for the people I love. So let's look at, let's look at the, the prayer, verses 9 through 11. Thanks for getting that up there for us. This is my prayer. That your, and I had him highlight a few key words in here. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Let's just take that. Little chunk. By the way, all the pronouns in here in Greek are singular. So it's perfectly legit for it's not like Paul is praying a blanket prayer for the whole church. He's praying for individuals. That's the church. The church is you. So these promises and this prayer doesn't apply to just whoever you think is the, are the spiritual people. No, this is you and this is me. And that's why it's so comforting. I'm praying that your love may abound more and more in two things, in those two things. But let's just look at the word abound. It's a fun word. It means to, it literally means to exceed all of the boundaries and measurements. 
If there, the best synonym in English that I can think of for this Greek word is the word overflow. It literally means more than enough. He said, I'm praying that your love would overflow more and more. So by adding that phrase onto the overflow, it means there's going to be, it's going to get fuller and it's going to overflow more. And it's, it's, that's speaking of growing. Not just the love itself, but even the overflow growing. In these two things, keywords, knowledge and depth of insight. I'll give you both of these Greek words if you're writing it down, you want to check me out. The word knowledge is one of about four Greek words for knowledge. It's my favorite one. And in English, it wouldn't even be translated knowledge. It would probably be best translated intimacy. The Greek word is epinosis, spelled E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, epinosis. It literally means knowledge which is acquired by intimate, personal acquaintance. And we need to talk about that because 2 Peter 1.3, one of my favorite verses, I personally think may be the most important verse in the New Testament for believers. Maybe John 3.16 is the most important one for unbelievers. 2 Peter 1.3 says, God has given us every single thing we need for life and for godliness through our epinosis of him who called us, through our intimate personal acquaintance. So that's job one. It's always grieved me ever since I thought, especially since I've been ordained as a pastor, it's grieved me to look at church history and look at all the stuff we've given God except the one thing that he wanted the most. And that's intimacy with us. It's always been his heart's desire ever since the garden. It's what he went to lengths that we can't even fathom to restore after sin entered into humanity and polluted the whole thing. It's always been God's heart to have intimacy with his people. And it's bizarre. We build big buildings. We have fabulous programs. We tell other people about them. We spend all our energy on other things except for the one thing that he wants the most, which should be job one. So Paul, sharpshooter Paul, says the thing that I'm praying for is that your love for God, your love for each other is going to just keep growing and overflowing in two things. One is in intimacy with the Lord. Please don't substitute that for church or church activities or theology or ministry. Because that really the bottom line reason we were saved wasn't to serve God, folks. It was to know him intimately. And serving him is supposed to be fruit of that. And it's weird how, I mean, I have heard, can't tell you how many pastors I've heard, save to serve, save to serve, save to serve. And I want to say, no way. 
That's not the bottom line reason. That'll be a fruit. The real reason we are saved is Jesus would rather die than live without you. He wanted to be with you forever, as close as is possible in intimacy. And that's what the work that God started. And Paul said, yeah, okay, yeah, I hear good things are happening there in Philippi, but you know what I pray? Is that as you guys grow in your love, that it, that it will overflow and grow constantly in, first of all, intimacy with him. That's where all the good stuff comes from. We're going to see later on in verse 11, that's where the fruit of righteousness comes from, is from that intimacy with him. You know the difference, don't you? I'm not, I hope I don't sound like I'm yelling at you because I was, I was well into my late 20s being raised in church before I had any idea. I was raised in performance-based Christianity. And it was all about what you're doing for him. And, and that's wrong. Bottom line is you and him like this, intimately walking through your life. And you know what? Every fruit, every service, every ministry that comes out of that is going to be pleasing to him. But don't get it mixed up. So number one, praying that your love will overflow in epinosis, intimacy. It's a fat word. It's interesting that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Epinosis is the word that is used for the sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. It's a very unreligious word. Then it was God's idea. When he saved you, it wasn't, okay, now get busy. First of all, give me a bunch of money because I'm going to go broke because you, you heard what that televangelist just said. And secondly, get out there and get to work, buddy. No. He saw you heading, and me heading for hell. He said, get over here, you beautiful hunk of human potential. Let's hose you down. <laughs> Let's get that junk off you and come here into my arms and spend eternity as close as you can get. And you know what, folks? Nod your head if I'm right. Once you taste that, Nothing, nothing can take the place of that. That's the life in my life. And I'm a professional. <laughs> the people that are the greatest treasures in my heart also understand that completely. So when I'm close with them, more Jesus rubs off on me. Because they're just wrapped all around him, so I love that. And that's just the best thing. Why would you why would you trade that for religion? <laughs> Second thing he's praying will abound more and more is depth of insight. Some of your translations might say discernment. I'll give you the Greek word. It's eisthesis. A-I-S-T-H-E-S-I-S. Actually, eisthesis. And it literally means to be able to see beneath the surfaces of things. Now, on Sunday, I met a lady. Anne introduced me to a lady who's a sailor. Is she here tonight? Raise your hand if you're here. Okay. 
It was really cool meeting another sailor and really cool meeting a lady that was a sailor. But the, the, this word, eisthesis, discernment, depth of insight, the thing that it always reminds me of is a nautical chart versus a road map. If you look at a road map of where I live, I live up in the San Juan Islands, a bunch of islands, all surrounded by water. But if you look at a road map, the water area is all blank. It's blue, and it's all blank. And then there's all kinds of lines and information and topographical things on the land part of it. But if you look at the same area on a nautical chart, all of the land things are blank. And where the water is, there's thousands of pieces of information. There's hundreds and hundreds of numbers, and there's little wavy lines, and there's little words telling you what kind of a bottom is there in case you want to throw your anchor out. You need to know what's down there. And But when you, let's just say when you stand on the shore and you look out over the land, it's just featureless. You're looking out over the water. You look over the land, you see houses, you see mountains. You look over the water, it's just flat. What happens when the Holy Spirit moves into our lives, nod your head if this has happened to you, you start seeing beneath the surface of things a little bit. And instead of life being featureless, stuff happens and you go, yo, I'll bet you God's up to something. And you talk to somebody that doesn't know and they say, what? what? I don't see anything. And you go, no. But you know, under the surface, God's doing something because he said he was. Depth of insight, being able to see beneath the surface of the things. And I have to tell you, that should be growing in our lives. If we're still panicking because of our president and his personality, or if the other one had won, I didn't, I didn't vote for either one of them. I voted for Ben Carson, but... If we're still panicking like it's all out of control, we're missing something, folks. Or if we just look out there and it just looks featureless and blank, we're missing something. There's a lot going on beneath the surface. Paul says, I want you guys to see that. I want you to know what's going on beneath the surface. Because that's your security. If you're just looking to circumstances, you're just going to be all over the map emotionally. So that's what depth of insight is. First of all, I want you to be growing and overflowing, Paul says, in your intimacy with the Lord. Everything starts there, all the good stuff. But I also want you to be able to see things the way God sees them. And I can promise you, you won't see that on the news. And you take a collective vote of your friends, sadly to say, even if they're Christians, and you might not really be able to see beneath the surface. That comes from the Holy Spirit that's been given to us to help us to see. He's the one that gives us the nautical chart that says, yeah, it's 600 feet deep right here at this point, but just about 10 feet that direction, there's an underground mountain. And if you go that way, you're going to rip the bottom out of your boat. So don't go that way. Ask me how I know these things. <laughs> I love nautical charts. I think they're great art. I just, I mean, I used to have, have them on my walls like wallpaper. 
But they weren't meant to be pretty. They were meant to show us what to avoid. Depth of insight. Paul says, I want that to be growing and overflowing. I want you to have so much depth of insight that nothing the devil throws at you can phase you. A big fire comes through and does unprecedented damage. I want you to be able to see that God is still up to something. It just means his plans were different than ours. And his are eternal and they're better. And these are things he told me when I lost everything. You know what he'd say to me every single morning when I was so disoriented, I didn't even know where to begin. Especially the last time, because I was old. How do you start over again when you're old? And I'd put so much energy and careful planning and stewardship into all of it, and it just was gone. You know what he'd say to me every morning? He'd say, son, what about me has changed? since five days ago. What about me has changed? I said, well, technically, I guess, well, I guess nothing. And he said, then what's your problem, son? You just left me out of the equation. You just forgot to factor me in. Because my plan hasn't changed. It's the same plan it always was. Right on the dashboard of my car, my Jeep, where I see it every time I get in the car, is Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4, which says, Before you were born, I carried you. And ever since you were born, I carried you. And I've upheld you. And even to your old age and gray hairs, I'm the same. I will rescue you. I will deliver you. And I highlighted the words, I am the same. Because that's what it's all about. That's the depth of insight thing. I can't promise you that everything is going to go according to your plans. I can't promise you you're not going to get a, 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 a scary doctor's report. Or bad news in an email. I can't promise you any of those things. I can promise you one thing. He is the same. He will not change. And we need that, don't we? So, I'm praying these two things will be will overflowing and growing in your life. And then there's that big fat, so that. <laughs> so that tells me I'm about to be told the purpose. Well, he just said that. I'm about to be told the results of what happens when intimacy with the Lord and depth of insight is growing constantly in my life so that you'll be able to, and there's three things, you'll be able to discern what's best and be pure and blameless and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Let's look at those three things. Discern what is best. And I had him highlight the word best. Because Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we won't be able to discern what's best unless our lives are like living sacrifices where we're not living for ourselves anymore. We won't even be able. So Paul says, 
I'm telling you, I'm begging you by God's mercy, give your bodies to God like living sacrifice. Let your brain be constantly recalibrated. Then you'll be able to tell what God's will is, his best, his perfect will. Best versus comfortable. Best versus easy. But we get that confused, don't we? Best versus fun. Best versus my idea of best. Paul said, you know, if you're walking in intimacy with the Lord and you're learning more and more to see beneath the surface of things, your idea of what's best is going to change in any given situation. And he said, that's what I want for you. And the second thing is to be pure and blameless. Those are great words. I just want to say something for me. I've got plenty of time to do this. Thank you, Lord. The word pure literally means unpolluted or undiluted. Was there ever a time in history where we needed that more than in our culture? I, the, the church is barely recognizable right now from what it started out to be. We have been so polluted by the world or we've been so diluted, watered down. Paul says, I want you guys to be absolutely unpolluted, undiluted. That'll come if your intimacy with the Lord is daily growing and overflowing and if you're able to see beneath the surface of things, which you will be if you're more filled with him. These are the things I pray for you. Loved ones, I beg you, please pray these things for me. And the word blameless literally means without offense. I'm just going to make one. So not a rabbit trail. It's a little rabbit turnout. We'll just sit here for a minute. Although whenever I do a rabbit trail, there's always a rabbit at the end of it. So it's worth the trip. The word blameless means without offense. Let me tell you, this Greek word is not the same as sinless. All the promised scriptures that talk about blameless, I used to just say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm a doofus, I'm a sinner. But see, without offense, you could be the biggest sinner in the world, but if your record has just been erased, if you have been forgiven and cleansed and made new. You know the word that describes you before God's court of justice? Blameless. Jesus took our sin on himself. Paul says, I want you to be blameless. Does that mean? It means I keep my accounts short. It means I stay close to him. It means I learn to look more at him than at myself. If I sin, I confess it immediately, get it cleansed, get it out of there. And by God's definition, that makes me blameless. And Paul says, that's what I want. I want that to be your experience. Even if you have to repent a hundred times in a day, been there, done that. See, the forgiveness has already been paid for. In fact, the Bible says he's not really even keeping a record against us. And filled with the fruit of righteousness, verse 11. 
That literally is all that a righteous life produces. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. I'm not judging you, because, and I'm like Paul, I'm not even judging myself. I'm just hanging on to Jesus as tight as I can. And that's what's going to, once again, 2 Peter 1.3, God's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our epinosis, our intimacy with him. And here it says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He produces the fruit. We don't produce the fruit. In my guy brain, my, you know, Mr. Go Out and Fix It brain, before I learned the truth, I looked at, remember looking at the fruit of the Spirit and looking at it as a, a challenge list, a project list. Okay, love, joy, peace, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and I'll just take one and I'll just, and I'll just work on this and I'll do it. I'll get her done, you know? <laughs> what I found was I had to keep moving down the list because I'd work on one for a while and I just said, well, obviously I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this. And finally I got the way the to the end, and I just thought, I can't do this. <laughs> what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, apart from me, cut off from me, you can't do anything. I thought, well, <laughs> sure I can. He said, well, no, not anything that would matter to me. But if you abide in me, intimacy, if my words abide in you, depth of insight. If that's happening in an increasing way, you will produce fruit. It's a done deal. Just like an apple tree doesn't have to go to seminars on how to produce apples. It doesn't have to... And, you know, there's an apple. It just, it just sits there, watered by the sun, nutrients from the ground, and it grows apples. It was what it was created for. Good stuff, huh? Yes. Can you see why Paul prayed those things? That's what I pray for you. All the churches that I've pastored, this was the thing I prayed for them more than anything else. Number one, be crazy in love with Jesus. Know him intimately. There's no limit to how close you can be to him. Because if you get so close, you're about to explode, you know, you'll just be in heaven and then it'll be even better. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty much limitless. We can have as much as we want. How much do you want? As much as I can get. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that to be growing. I want to see things his way. And I don't, a lot of the time. But you know what? In the words of Gloria Gaither, not what I want to be, not what I'm going to be, but thank God, I'm not what I was. Because he's not done yet. And you know what? He's going to keep working until he is done. It's not all about here, and it's not all about now. So if there are some baffling things that you're learning and it looks like God's not paying any attention. No, he's just looking in a different place than you are. 
He's looking at a finished product that you didn't even know he was working on, just like my daddy. And God said, yeah, this one's about ready to go. He just needs about eight years worth of suffering alone with me. And I'll polish him right off. And then that's who he's going to be for the next trillion years. I'm up for that. Let's pray. Nobody could do this, Lord, but you. I certainly can't. I can, I can barely understand these words. But my great comfort is that even if I have trouble believing it, you believe it. And so that's all that matters. So I pray, Lord, that we would believe it because that'll make us a lot more happy campers. That'll help us to be not quite so tense about the people that we love that seem to be totally out of reach. That will help us to weather the certain storms and tribulations that you promised we would have in this world. So may we wrap ourselves around you as you wrap yourself around us. May we start to see things your way. That's my prayer for me and these dear people. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.